Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mint Backstage. Thanks so much for joining us today. I am here chatting today with Hannah Truckenbroad. I first met this wonderful jazz singer years ago when I was studying at Western Michigan University. Since I last saw her and since we both have graduated, she has gone on to do a bunch of cool things, including touring for a few years with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. And she also recently was involved in a live performance with Kurt Elling. So she is doing a lot of cool things and is now based in Chicago. But it was great getting to catch up and hear about all that she's been up to since the pandemic started and a lot of her priorities shifted. If you liked today's conversation and you want to support my podcasting efforts, you can head on over to patreon.com slash There you can get early access to podcast episodes, exclusive merch, and more. You can also go to dutchersnedeker.com to see everything else that I am up to. Thanks again for listening, and feel free to share this with someone who you think would enjoy these types of conversations. And don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, any way that you normally interact with an account or platform that you enjoy. Show some love. It shows some love for my algorithm and all that wonderful behind-the-scenes metric stuff that you probably don't want to pay attention to. <laughs> but it really does help, and I appreciate everyone who takes the time to do it. All right. Let's get into today's episode with Hannah Truckenbroad. I had a lot of unnecessary stress for the morning, but it was resolved in 10 minutes. So There you go. Seems to be how it happens. The ebb and flow. Yep. But yeah, how's, uh, how's you know, getting back out there? I mean, 2021, where did the doors are opening <laughs> in places. <laughs> I'm not really doing much uh, to put myself out there necessarily. Um, sure. The Kurt gig happened because I had been doing, uh, so I'm pretty well acquainted, um, professional friends um, with right, yeah. uh, Brian Farina, who is his uh, sound engineer and manager. And uh, Brian's also a Western alum. Okay. And he and his wife, Judy, are based out in, uh, well, the Chicago suburbs, but Chicago area. Um, and Judy is a director for the Chicago Children's Choir. So I kind of met her in high school through my own high school choir director. And um, they're just really lovely people. Great to know, great to work with. And Brian had me working on some uh, like graphic design and video editing throughout the past year um, for some things. Uh, a lot of uh, Kurt's projects I was working on behind the scenes and then also doing some stuff for uh, Show Choir Camps of America. They, they did their virtual camp last year and then this year as well. It just wrapped up last week, I think. And um, I've done videos for Chicago Children's Choir as well. So a lot of my stuff has been on the computer for the past year, but uh, Brian hit me up maybe a month or so ago. Well, probably like a month before the actual gig or maybe a few few weeks beforehand. I was like, hey, you want to sing backgrounds for Kurt at Ravinia? And I was like, yes. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so that was that. And, you know, he got us the music. Um, well, so I'll, I'll back up. The sure. project is his new album coming out in October for... Uh, it's called Super Blue. I actually don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about it. 
but I'm sure it's fine. I mean, it's it. You could already buy it at the shows. Uh, right. It's just officially being released on audition uh, in October. It's called Super Blue. It's a project with Charlie Hunter and his band, um, Corey Fonville and DJ Harrison. And so yep. it was the four of them uh, at Ravinia playing the record down, basically. And so uh, they called me and then this other girl, Sophia, who's a Chicago local, um, to sing backgrounds. And uh, yeah, got us some music did not rehearse we just showed up <laughs> ran the set down at the sound check and and that was that it was very casual informal um i don't know if you've been to ravinia but it's a gorgeous venue up in the north suburbs of chicago um in highland park and it's the summer home for the chicago symphony orchestra so the big main pavilion is where cso plays most of the summer uh okay. and then we were in a smaller pavilion off to the side since they have that residency um and it's a huge lawn people it's like a whole culture up in the north suburbs like you bring your little like tables it's more than just like a picnic or anything like people bring their tables and their fine china and their candelabras and make like a whole evening of it on the grass um, which is super cute but yeah so that was that I wish there was more to tell you, but no. like that was that was that was the whole thing, and and um, there's supposed to be more dates in the fall. Brian's gonna get back to me about that. They're playing a festival in Brooklyn in October that I might play out for, and um, other than that, right now, <laughs> that 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 was my one gig. <laughs> hey, that's a, that's a pretty cool gig. Yeah, well, yeah, no complaints. Obviously, super grateful, and it's a good time. Yeah, well, and because I've. I love Butcher Brown. So anything that, you know, DJ Harrison or Corey Fonville, mm -hmm. you know, all those guys, anything they do, I, I, I try to keep tabs on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've been also loving that uh, they've been getting work. You know, it's not the full Butcher Brown band, but like those dudes are being called to do other, you know, session work, production. Right. And uh, I've been listening to Nigel Hall's recent record, um, he just put together this great record that you can feel like how much fun they had doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's like a lot of cool, you know, soul vibes, throwback Motown, you know, yeah, one bad. of them sounds like a, like a goofy, almost like seventies game show type theme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and like, uh, so yeah, just seeing when I, you know, saw him tagged, in a post and someone shared that post and I was like, I think that's Hannah, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually I was introduced to butcher Brown through uh, a fundraiser that Kurt did back in December. He did a blue holiday, which was a virtual concert event. Um, and it was a fundraiser for the Georgia runoff uh, election. And uh, butcher Brown did a video for that. And that was my first exposure to them. So yeah, huge fan as well. I think they're, really cool yeah very cool well and uh it's it seems like with all the video work you've been doing is that a is that a recent like you adapted to the changing in what you were doing or is it always kind of a passion to do that type of stuff <laughs> yeah I mean a little of both uh when I was a kid I was the one who always wanted to make like dvds of our family vacations and things like that and I would go into iMovie um, or like Windows Movie Maker, actually, is what we use. And uh, just, you know, played around with photos and videos and slapped some music on it and threw the transitions in there, and that was that. Um, but I've always just loved anything 
creative, which sounds so, you know, cliche, but um, anything I can like tackle a project and make something and be like, look what I made. Um, but so then this past year in the pandemic, when I was home, uh, well, first of all, I, as you know, I was on the road with the Glenn Miller Orchestra before COVID hit and we right. all flew home. Uh, we were out on the West Coast, actually heading up towards Washington. Um, we were booked for like Oregon and Washington at the end of March, and those got canceled like at the beginning of March because that was kind of like the epicenter of infections. And uh, those started getting canceled. We were like, okay, maybe break will uh, break will start a little early or whatever. Um, but we were in like Arizona and then California around like the first and second weeks of March. And our last gig was at UCLA on March 11th, that Wednesday. And we flew home uh, March 14th on Saturday from Vegas and everything had been canceled. <laughs> in, in the meantime, we were just like waiting out, like driving to each city, seeing if they were still going to do the show and then it getting canceled like an hour before call time or something, you know? So uh, I was home. I That was my full-time job. So I did not have like my own place. So I went home and lived with my parents um, and in the meantime, so for the past year, I had been doing social media for the band. In the meantime, uh, the company was like, hey, we want you to still like keep posting, um, which was difficult, obviously, because the band was off payroll and we only had so much like backlogged B-roll content uh, right. to post. And it was hard to ask the guys to like record things at home if not getting paid for it which was everybody's struggle kind of right. um, but we decided to work on a virtual performance video and we did in the mood and everybody recorded their parts at home <laughs> and uh you know i just i just told them i was like hey everybody's doing this right now we need to put something out i'll figure it out <laughs> I, had, I had never used premiere pro before so that was like my my project to learn how to use it and, and that's what <laughs> i did um so starting with that we worked on some uh well we started with a smaller one just with our vocal group um we did perfidia uh just to test the waters and and see how it would go and then we did a full band thing but um yeah after that i did some friends like virtual choirs like who are high school teachers just for an end of the year kind of video um i helped out with sca like i said that was a little later on i was I was actually in person for show choir camp oh, okay. in a studio quartet because the director of the camp is uh, based in Naperville, which is very close to where I live. I'm from Aurora, Illinois. Okay. And they called some people in the Chicago area who either had been to camp or who knew some of the directors and stuff. And we basically, well, the, the staff engineered a, a COVID safe studio and we took our temperatures every day and wore masks until we were like in our little plexiglass studios and we were like the models for the kids watching camp online. And uh, so we just had an SATB quartet and we did that. But then later on, I, I edited, some, edited some footage for Brian, who was working on that camp as well. Um, I helped out with the New York Voices virtual uh, vocal jazz camp through Western as well last summer, um, doing video editing for one of the choirs. I did Peter Eldridge's choir, and then I was also moderating the Zoom rooms for camp and all the different classes and stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, I started doing CCC work this past fall, working on uh, like grids and concert videos for smaller choirs. 
uh, for all of their virtual like big concert events. And since they're a huge nonprofit, they do. I, I mean, I feel like they pulled out all the stops. I thought it was really incredible. <laughs> um, I worked on their Black History Month concert and uh, their Canta Latino concert as well this past winter. And I was just like, dang, they got everything. It was very cool, like a whole virtual <laughs> fundraiser event. Um, yeah. So yeah, everything's self-taught. I've just been <laughs> kind of, you know, making my uh, services available where I can help. It's fun for me. So I've always enjoyed graphic design and, and and now video design as well. So yeah, I think I share the same the shame the shame the same sentiment <laughs> um, in terms of like always kind of having a a passion for creating stuff because I remember you know when I was a kid um when we went to visit you know my uncle who lives in massachusetts he would you know i I don't even remember where we went i just remember being in the car uh and me and my younger cousin we had a little fisher price radio with like a microphone and we were like improvising a radio show and recording it to tape (laughs) yeah oh yeah i was always trying to put on shows in the backyard and like getting all the kids from the street and like casting them in my musicals and things like that (laughs) and i remember parents being like what does hannah think she's doing like she's not going to get these kids to perform like they're they don't want to do this but i I'm I'm an oldest child. I'm a Leo. I liked being in charge and trying to get people to do things. <laughs> so uh, yeah, fun fun times. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I think too that it's it speaks to kind of like what a lot of people you know people I've talked to on and off the podcast uh, have been saying you know especially in the last year and a half two years just wanting to have some basic command of like video editing, photo editing, you know, being able to kind of, you know, be multifaceted as a creative, you know, just beyond, you know, playing or beyond, you know, recording, like just having, you know, a chance to, or having, I guess the workflow and the skills to like, you know, I could put something on Instagram, but I can also make something a little long form with multi cameras or I can totally. you know, try green using a green screen or, you know, there's so many skills that kind of feed into like the work you can get, the people you can meet, the stuff you do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah for sure. That- for me, it was always like a, I have too many interests. It's hard for me to pick one. (laughs) Um, When I was in like middle school and early high school, I was going to Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp um, as an art major. And I thought I was going to do visual art as like my thing forever. Wow. Um, But I had a really great choir director and choir program at my high school, which kind of fostered my love of singing as like my number one. So that was what I pursued. And, And it kind of always just like, it came naturally to me. It was, it was the most fun for me. So that that was why I kind of uh, focused on that one. But even still, like I think that has been something that the pandemic, obviously not a great thing, but it has been great for, is uh, letting everybody kind of focus on on hobbies they may have let fall by the wayside or other things they've always wanted to try for the first time. Um, so I've gotten back into like painting and jewelry making and things like that um (laughs) you know I I used to do a ton of photography in college and I kind of let that go because I didn't want to take my DSLR on the road and uh pulling that back out has been 
really joyful for me. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's those things that you feel like because you either maybe got a college degree in something or it's it's the only thing you've been doing for work for a long time, you think you've pigeonholed yourself into one medium or one craft. Um, and you're, you know, you're allowed to call yourself like a visual artist, even if you're not selling your art or making money from it or even showing anybody. Right. Uh, you can still include it as like a part of your identity. Yeah. And I think it that's so true that like people kind of undervalue, you know, uh, yeah, like, you know, they do something in private and they think like, oh, well, you know, I'm not like this guy who's got, you know, right. art, uh, you know, up in all these galleries. It's like no but you're still like you're still practicing that that craft and it's yeah. gonna you know inspire and inform even if you don't yeah even if it's just personal and not everything has to be monetized like I'm I'm guilty of being like oh I could start doing you know like last year when Pokemon cards were at kind of a boom uh, <laughs> I was just like you know it might be fun to get back into that hobby and like maybe I'll yeah. make some content and, and now it's just like oh I want to you know, I might do a video here and there, but it's it's more just trying to get back into the hobby of collecting in general, just different yeah. different things that I'm that are fun and you know, totally. I don't I don't need to like try and be these these people who are like, I I bought a first edition you know, like an original set and it's like that's like that's like fifty thousand dollars. I don't yes. have that kind of money. Yes. Well I think I, I totally agree with you about feeling the need to like make content about everything that you do. I think that has become such a weird precedent over the past few years with especially musicians um, using specifically Instagram and also YouTube, I think, um, more so than any other platforms to kind of put themselves out there. And obviously TikTok now is like a way that musicians specifically are getting discovered and signed. And it... I have conversations with people who just love to play the guitar for fun or something like that. And they're like, well, I'm not a real musician like you. And I'm like, you probably play the guitar better than me. Like, yes. you know, <laughs> and just because you didn't ever take a lesson or something like that, it doesn't mean that you're not a musician. And, it, you know, that I have to give myself the same grace for like the other things <laughs> that I love in my life. So, <laughs> right. And it's, you know, those type of people too. It's like, you don't want to, come across like you know listing your you know training or you know some of the fun stuff you've done in your career yeah it's, it's like you don't want to sound too comparative of like like no this is what a real musician looks like is like you know that's what you know that's what causes some people to leave their you know opportunities they've started to like yeah. you know overextend themselves and their finances in a city that like is not serving what they want to do and right and yeah, it's like more damaging to be like, no, you, you only have to be, you have to do art full time and you have to feel hunger and pain and, and like the negatives inform the positive output. And it's like, no, I'm actually, that's so awesome that you bring that up. I'm actually reading this book um, called real artists don't starve. Whoa. Um, it's by Jeff Goins and I'm about a third of the way through it right now, but he basically talks a lot about, um, career changers, people who realized that they were in one path and then they wanted to pursue an artistic passion and then they end up making that like their their full-time career, their full-time moneymaker. Um, but then he also talks about how like if you are suffering in other areas of your life, it's not going to necessarily 
serve your art. And we hear a lot of stories about, you know, the greats who did suffer or had issues like substance abuse or they had, you know, they were super lonely and didn't have like social connections or maybe they ended their own lives, like their mental health wasn't in the best place. Right. It makes you wonder at what cost, at what cost do you get to pursue your art and, and be great? Um, and, and what do you have to sacrifice? And so he makes a, a great argument in this book about how you, you don't have to do that. And you might actually serve your art better if it's not making you starve. <laughs> right. Um, and, and like, I, I talk about this a lot with people who, you know, either they ask me about like, oh, what was jazz school like? Or like, you mm-hmm. know. Other, just talking about jazz and how so many artists that are like in the history books that developed the art form that you know shaped it into what it is now they all had some sort you know like oh they died young they you know mm-hmm. they had this this addiction they abused people they you know yeah. did this and this and this and like I feel like it's important to acknowledge that you know like someone like Miles Davis like yes he you know every few years he's just like i'm gonna change everything and then he did it and and he wore crazy clothes and you know he's got a million different points of reference for his playing and artistry but then you know those things in the nooks and crannies of like how he was as a person how he interacted with women you know and it's it's all it's all nuanced and i think nuance is like a big a big thing especially now it's you know social media everyone else trying to put their best foot forward you know like but you don't see the 30 takes it took to get that lick down you see the lick in one take in a 15 second reel and then you think oh he probably just set up his phone and bam and it's like no no (laughs) no and you start to realize that when you're practicing and you're like oh i want to put this you know this chunk or this verse or whatever on instagram and you've recorded it 10 times and you've hated every single take (laughs) And you're just like, well, damn, there goes like an hour of my life. Like, <laughs> I, I I didn't think it was going to take this long or something like that. And it, and it makes you think like, oh, those people probably had the same uh, experience, you know. So right. it is something that it, it takes time. Nothing, nothing just comes like that to anybody. And that's maybe a downfall of social media is making us feel like they that just took them a few seconds or you know even outside of music a a downfall of social media is is just displaying the good stuff is just displaying the the wins and so you know that's something i am always working on remembering like oh they they bought a house wow good for them life must be so easy for them or something like that and and meanwhile no they probably worked really really hard and had to have like support from a family member or something especially if they're young like our generation like who's buying houses right now (laughs) so you know there's always more to the story that doesn't get shared right yeah especially uh, funny thinking about you know house talk I I was at my friend's wedding and that was a lot of the icebreaker conversations it's just you know people talking about the Grand Rapids housing market right now and Mm -hmm. like it was either like I'm glad that I got in before the market went up I, you know, I'm glad I own a house during this market because I'm looking to sell or, you know, I, I've, you know, I've offered 30 K over the asking and they still won't, you know, someone else will bid 50. And meanwhile, I'm just like, cool. I, I rent. Yes. Uh, (laughs) 
So that's I, Mike. I used to see myself renting for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I get that. But it is it is definitely like you know, I I try not to get caught up in you know, especially as I dig more and more into like social media tools and, you know, understanding these metrics and not trying to obsess over them, but trying to see the trends as, you know, informing some of my decisions and not even, not even purely like, you know, I don't want to be that guy that's, that turns into like, Oh, people like it when I do this one thing, I'm only going to post about that. Cause that's right. not, it doesn't make sense to who I am as an artist. Or this is going to, you know, this is going to win the algorithm. This is going to get shown to the most people or things like that. Right. It's, it, and, and there's no, there's, you know, there's some gu- guarantee if you have like a, you know, if you're like the rock, it's like, okay, all of my posts are going to get 20,000 likes at yeah. least. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he's only, you know, searching or his team, he's not doing it. He's so right. busy. Um, it's not like his team is, you know, thinking to, they're thinking about how to go viral, but everyone, you know, they already have a likable person. So it's, you know, it kind of, it's a, it's a model that's like, okay, if you're, you know, endearing, honest, you know, transparent, there's, there is room for growth in just that general aspect rather than trying to, you know, find the pulse of the algorithm every few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that I struggled with when I was doing social media for the band. Um, because I was obviously running my own social media and um, for kind of like half a year prior to taking over the band accounts, uh, a lot of that was like promoting my album, which I did all by myself, you know, like it was not like a huge thing. I didn't have a label putting anything out there or whatever, but like in my own network and community, like I was doing that promotion and I had fun with it. And it was like, I got to make all the rules. Obviously I didn't, I didn't care like if stuff didn't work because it was my own fault and like you know we just keep trying and it's still like my personal account in a way even though I am like a a brand now as as an artist too but yeah it was fun I would do like stories every week about where I was going to be because I was obviously traveling um and so like if I had people in wherever we were going to be going, I would love to invite them to the shows or catch up with them for coffee or whatever. And so the management came to me when the guy who was doing social media was about to leave the band. And they're like, hey, we want you to take over. We want you to run it like you do your personal stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. That's a lot of work though. And they did not have a huge budget for social media. They never do. <laughs> and... Um, it, it, it's it's probably even less than you're, you're thinking it was it was pennies yeah. um, but I was like okay if you have and, and their goals for being on social media was to um obtain a younger audience obviously the Glenn Miller fan base is um uh trickling the numbers are dwindling and In the they movie. want to stay relevant. So there's obviously a really great um, vintage community that of like people our age in their twenties and thirties. And 
they're so fun. And when I would get to meet like those few young people at shows, they'd be like, this is the coolest thing ever. I can't believe I'm seeing you guys play, things like that, obviously. Whereas like, you know, older people would be at the shows, they'd be like, I heard Glenn Miller play in Paris when I was in the war and things like that. And um, it's like, oh, like the real guy. Um, but right. <laughs> anyway, they wanted, a, they wanted to stay relevant. That was their reasoning for being on um, Instagram. And I was like, okay, well, the way that we reach people is, is you know, we, we put certain tags on, on our posts and people who are following those tags, like World War II or Big Band or like very broad things like that, want to see Glenn Miller pop up in that culture. Um, you know, and then we have to go and like find the people who follow those and maybe comment on their posts and then like, you know, share other things from other groups who are doing the same sort of stuff and, and other vintage music performing groups and and I was like, that takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And to them, they were like, well, you're just sitting on the bus. You could just do it while you're on the bus, right? Nope. <laughs> I see your logic, but I could also be sleeping on the bus. <laughs> yeah, I could also be. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it, it's hard. It's hard to, um, I, I think still, even now that social media is so prevalent and such a cornerstone of PR and marketing, it, it's still hard for people to understand how much time should be given to it, how much money should be funneled into it, and how that affects the people who are operating its well-being. Um, because I was talking to a friend who was working full-time doing social media for Chacos, like the shoe brand, the outdoors brand, okay. um, which was huge. And he was like, I don't get a vacation, even when I'm on vacation. I have to be like checking posts and making sure that the stuff that I scheduled out is performing well and replying to comments in real time and answering DMs. And I'm like, that's not a vacation. And that's hard. And so I'm kind of rambling now. But, you know, it it totally changed for me when it went from something fun for myself and my own brand, essentially, just like me as a person, um, to doing it for an organization. Because where are those guidelines? I don't know if there's necessarily still that that um, that guidebook for performing ensembles running social media necessarily. I'm sure people maybe who listen to this are going to be like, oh, actually, I do that, and I do know all the rules, and you know, I'd love to hear it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're figuring it out by yourself and you have no background in it, it's just kind of like, okay, we just uh, we do a lot of googling and we uh, find what sticks. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a different beast having to do someone else's social media um, when it's not tied to like your like in some aspects it can be tied to what you you know focus on as an artist, but yeah. it's you know there's more there's usually like some sort of rule you know like unspoken like oh wait we didn't want you to post that it's like well no one told me not to so right. why okay that's but, another thing yeah. I, i've seen friends who also do social media for different organizations um it's like you're hiring a social media coordinator aren't you trusting them that they know what's gonna like perform well shouldn't shouldn't you just <laughs> hand over that responsibility i guess it, there's a there's a lot of those stories where i feel like people are posting what they know is going to do well or what they think the community is going to respond to and then management being like, no, 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 that's not it. That's not it. And it's like, okay, well. It's like, well, then you do it. Yeah, you do it. <laughs> like with peace and love, you do it. Mm -hmm. But what, well, and I think of like 
um, you know, it reminded me of two things, both born out of YouTube. One, I uh, was observing um, uh, this tech YouTuber, one of the big, I want to say he's in the top 10. He's probably okay. one of the big three tech creators, like Linus Tech Tips, Austin Evans, and then this guy, Marquise Brownlee. Um, Marquise just uh, did a studio tour showing like, okay, here we bought this building. Here's all the sets. Here's all, you know, the staff. And he's got people who it's like, this guy is just focused on discord. Like that's his job. He mm-hmm. handles the discord community. He knows the platform really well. He knows how to keep people engaged. He knows how to make things fun yeah. that feeds into the rest of the company. And so, so many people are like, well, we just want, you know, like, Hey, you're a, you know, a server at this restaurant. Can you also be the social media manager? Mm-hmm. It's like, but that's not <laughs> like, that's so much more work. Like, yes, she's a, like, the idea is always like, well, she's in, she's more on the floor. She knows the customer. She's got a good idea of the restaurant. She's been here a while or, you know, right. or he's been here a while. And like, they just assume they being, yeah, employment. It's like, well, I don't really spend a lot of time on social media. So she shouldn't have to spend a lot of time on social media with this right. job. And it's like, no, it's, it. you got to find someone who's like, really, that's like a passion, but also understanding that they need the space to develop an audience, develop a voice for the the platform, develop, you know, yeah, all these totally. things that, um, cause I think about, you know, like I, I know I need to up my game a little bit with, uh, third coasts recording companies posting. And when I came, when I kind of was assigned that role, it was it was kind of like oh the last post they had done was like a month ago so they mm-hmm. were just happy to have anything sooner than yeah. a month <laughs> yep. um and now you know it it's like we were saying it, it's so tied to the pr of of a business now that you have to ride that line between feeling like a company but also feeling personable but yes. also and it reminded me of uh, one of the YouTube rewind videos they did. Um, I think one of the lowest performing ones and it performed so low because it was like a company just kind of cherry picked like, Oh, Will Smith's on YouTube. And it's like, well, yeah, but YouTube's also where like people in their bedrooms get famous. So like, let's hide, <laughs> let's highlight some of those people who are like yeah. actually in the trenches instead of someone like Will Smith, who, Yes, he's charismatic. Yes, he knows how to be on camera. Yes, he's a talent. He's great. But he's also got a team. He's, you know, he's got all these experts just crunching the numbers and he's paying a staff. Like, that's a little bit different of an integration. Whereas someone like, like Jack Black, I feel like did a great job endearing himself to YouTube because he's already a personality and he let his like, like 12 year old son be the producer. So he knows how to edit (laughs) graphics, make, you know, he knows how to do jump cuts. He knows how to... He's, he's like, dad, do this. And Jack Black's, you know, knows how to take directions. So he just, it, it just it was a fun moment of synergy where he didn't feel like a celebrity, even though, you know, he's a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think more people can learn, not saying give all your social media content to your nephew, but just like, yeah, you know, well, I understand think, you know, it. Yeah, totally. There's something to be said for the average Joe having the power to market their it's a whole new element to small business right and and that goes for artists and musicians as well 
you have all of the tools at your fingertips to propel your career forward. Whereas maybe 50 years ago, people couldn't do that except for maybe on a very local scale by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And so now you have the entire world at your fingertips and it's almost like a game of catch up where like if you don't have social media as an artist, you're never gonna have a career really. Mm -hmm. Even if you're with a label or if you're with, you know, management or a talent agency or whatever, like people are using social media as a resume now and they're using it as customer service, you know, and and that was something I realized with GMO is like people would DM me about like their tickets. And I'm like, I don't do that. That's the venue. But like, you know, you still have to be able to manage people using that (laughs) platform. And it's become so many different things. I think it it became that before the general public was ready for it. And that's yes. why it's almost like an unfair advantage if you were on it 10 years ago, figuring it out. I hear about that with a lot of um, just like basic influencers who started out as maybe bloggers or YouTubers in like the early 2010s. And now they have a huge following and maybe they're like TV hosts or they have other you know amazing projects and they they started on social media they started on youtube things like that um because they just dove into that it was such a niche time period you know (laughs) and uh if you missed it you missed it (laughs) yes it's it's definitely like interesting to to see just how dialed in some people are with just kind of the ebb and flow of like, all right, I put out content. It might be sponsored. I have to hit these metrics and then, okay. You know, like someone like Mr. Beast yeah. who like, you know, every video has to hit a certain metric because he spends so much money on these spectacles. Mm-hmm. And then against that audience, he knows he can, he probably has like a, a, a margin of like, all right, you know, 10 to 20% of every viewed video you know some people buy merch and it's like you know it's interesting having having viewership because you know the uh, a, a person who sees like a million views they're like wow a million views like they must be loaded and it's like well you know they might have made a couple thousand off the adsense yeah and, but they might have sold merch if they had yeah. you know have a merch store like there's so many factors that go into what success looks like or feels sure. like so I think I was trying to think about like the first artist that I can remember watching who blew up because of YouTube and not like, I mean, I guess people think about Justin Bieber a lot in that way, but I was thinking about um, Scott Bradley and Postmodern Jukebox, Mm. how that was a more like left of center kind of project, but it was so niche and people loved it and those videos went viral. And now they have multiple, well, before COVID, they had multiple world tours going on, um, you know, with so many different performers and hosts and pulling people from different like jazz and vintage and dance and pop communities all to come together for these variety shows, essentially under Scott Bradley's brand, um, which is, you know, pop songs with a vintage twist. And they did it so well because... They just, and I don't know anything about the background of it, but I've, you know, met a few people who have worked with them and 
it's huge now and they started on youtube yeah and well and it's it's funny because i don't know if it's directly related to them but they're definitely like an example where so many tips for like people starting on youtube as musicians uh include try doing a song in a style that's not like the original song and yeah and that's yeah and it's it's like i've seen that with the um with the couch covers people um and i've you know uh scary pockets um Mm -hmm. you know just all these people who've made they've carved out like all right i'm gonna do pop songs but like this or you know recognizable songs with a twist and and that and i think of even super creative bands like nowhere uh they you know some of their first big videos were you know their daft punk and their you know some of their other covers with how they do their videos and stuff too totally so it's it's not a crazy idea and i just it's funny that like people people are 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 constantly having to adapt their advice for these platforms too (laughs) so true be like i didn't know you know vintage pop vintage versions of pop songs would go viral but now that i do i'm gonna recommend everyone try to (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's an interesting landscape right now for musicians it moves so fast too and like the nature of trends um and, and that's something else that's like super prevalent on TikTok right now is that if you miss a trend, you miss a trend. It's over in like three days. And if you do it like <laughs> a week or two later, it's like, where have you been? Like, we're on to something else now. Yeah. Um, and I even see that in like in in the music TikTok community as well. Uh, the one that stands out to me is Sammy Ray made a, a dancing queen challenge and you had to sing her lick of dancing queen in one breath and she was not expecting it to go viral but it did and now so many more people follow her and follow her band and love her music all because she got something viral on tiktok it's a huge tool but it's also like it's momentary it's gone like that and if it doesn't catch on it doesn't catch on yeah it's like it, it's almost like I, you know tiktok feels like you know like online window shopping <laughs> and, mm. and there's so many you know like it's like when you go to those shopping districts and you're just like oh that's kind of cool oh, that's cool whoa and then that pulls you into the store and then yep. suddenly you're like a more of a fan or invested and it's yep. it's it's interesting like how people can just churn it out and still like keep a level of consistency and like passion and drive behind it all too I I feel like I have to like you know space things out like you know with this podcasting it's it's like oh I could do a lot of stuff ahead of time it gives me room in the during my weekdays to you know work on other skills and things um but then some things are very much in the moment and then you know platforms are like oh uh facebook owns facebook and instagram but both platforms operate differently and scheduling still we like it works but they want you to post organically but they have the cross posting feature but they don't want you to use it but if you use it it's easy it's like (laughs) just a (laughs) yeah i hear you totally (laughs) yeah but um yeah it's cool that you're um i don't know able to like still like even with video work, it's still related to like things you enjoy about 
singing and performing and music. And oh, stuff. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. My favorite thing about putting these choir videos together over the past year is hearing things stack up and hearing things line up and seeing them visually as well. Um, and, you know, I could be video editing anything, but if I'm going to be doing something, I love that it's a group of singers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I get to hear all of their individual voices and then what they sound like together and, you know, making it look visually how I like it to be. But obviously I'm, I'm not working on the audio most of the time. I'm, I'm putting in a master that somebody else worked on. Um, so then like putting that on top and getting to see it all come together is very satisfying for me. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's something like, I feel like until you start video editing, you don't realize this feeling of like seeing a million different like clips and trims and you're moving and syncing and all yeah. this stuff. And then when, you know, it takes two hours to render or however long to render. And, right. and then, you know, you're like, I did, I have this one video file and it's all done. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so much. <laughs> so much going on behind those little three four minute videos we all watch yeah <laughs> um uh so you you mentioned i mean i i heard your your first album um has that been a fun thing to explore or has touring taken kind of your focus from like doing the little gigs of like here's my stuff just because it's so much time um, and energy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was with Glenn Miller, that was that was it. That was my full time gig. We were doing at least four or five shows a week, wow. and uh, we were on the road forty five to forty eight weeks out of the year. And every once in a while, some of the guys would get um, like one off sessions in a town where they might know somebody or whatever. They might go out to jams and stuff, but. I was typically more resigned to just chill. <laughs> um, it was it was a lot of energy, to say the least. And I was starting to burn out um, around the beginning of 2020 anyway. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, moving on to my next thing. So COVID just kind of forced me to do that like a couple months earlier than I had planned to. And, um, you know, when the album came out, I was sending it to radio stations and publications in like the Midwest, kind of just like the Great Lakes area since I went to school in Michigan and I live in Chicago and, you know, that was cool. And I'd have like family members reach out to me and be like, I just heard you on, you know, WCV or Blue Lake Radio or whatever. But um, <laughs> other than that, I wasn't doing a whole lot of promoting um, in person and, and I didn't do like a release show or anything like that. Um, the the purpose of recording the album really was to sell the physical discs on the road with the band. And that was why it ended up being, um, the, the tunes and arrangements that I did, it kind of had to be in the same great American songbook vein as the band, um, in order to sell it out there. And, uh, it did, it did really well <laughs> on the road, um, which I was grateful for. And it was part of the reason that I stayed with the band as long as I did as well. Um, just because a girl's got student loans. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta get um, the loans. <laughs> yep. So um, I was so grateful for the reception that it had from the fans, though. I had a lot of people messaging me on my website and 
uh, Facebook saying like, I've been following the Glenn Miller Orchestra for years and I bought your CD at the last show and I love it so much. It's, you know, it's great to hear you and can't wait to see what else you do and, and very kind people, you know, saying things like that. Um, but yeah, other than that, that that's basically the extent of that project <laughs> in, in general. And now I have because I had just reordered um, a bunch of CDs in February 2020, I have like hundreds of discs sitting in my apartment that I'm just never going to sell. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if anybody's listening to this, it's on my website. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what happened to our vinyl for Earth Radio's second yeah. album. We, we bought, because it was like, I think it was like 2200 from Furnace Records mm -hmm. uh, to get 300 and then it was 2400 to get 500. Yeah, they do that where it's like it just economically makes more sense to get 1000 instead of 500. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it goes from like, you know, maybe 250 $3 a disc to like less than a dollar a disc or something. I remember um yeah and i'll never forget i i got them sent to a hotel in boulder end of february and i had like seven or eight boxes heavy boxes of cds and and we did everything in one bus so we all had oh no i'm frozen i don't know if you can hear me oh i um oh okay. there you are cool i'm back uh <laughs> sorry about that so everything is in-house on the bus we have all of our gear under the bus we have all of our luggage under the bus and then we've got all of the guys suit jackets uh, my wardrobe closet and then like all of the merch band merch including myself and the male singers cds as well and so we had t-shirts and cds for the band um, oh, and hats as well. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I was on the merchandise sales team as well with another gentleman. And, you know, part of my side gig then was to count merch and sell at um, intermission and after the shows, which was also great because that's one of the best opportunities to talk to the audience. And, yeah. and they see your face and they, you know, get to ask you questions and tell you all their feedback, which I didn't think about but my other friends who were on like setup crew or things like that they were like oh yeah we'll get like one or two random people come up to the stage afterwards but like everybody goes out to the table um also because that's where the band leader would be um and they mostly want to talk to him but yeah <laughs> yeah anyway uh you know I, I i'll never forget it was snowing in boulder and i had all these boxes cds delivered to the hotel and i had to lug them out to the bus and get them in the closet and you know two weeks later we're flying home and that was interesting too because we left everything on the bus we did not know how long it was going to be obviously oh. before we came back and the bus went back to the depot in connecticut so mid-june my mom and i took a road trip out to or maybe early june took a road trip out to connecticut which was also it, it was definitely early june because it was in the midst of still heavy heavy protests um for george floyd oh and right we where where is Yale, New Haven. We stopped in New Haven to stay the night before driving back the next day. Um, and there was a protest finishing up that day and in the midst of COVID, obviously, and everything. We were like, what is this world that we're living in right now? And I'm just driving halfway across the country to go get my belongings off of a tour bus. Like, yeah. So, so crazy. So many things. So many things. <laughs> um, so, yeah. 
Yeah. That's... Well, my whole life was on that bus, you know? Yeah. For, for a while, my two years of my life just left it. Yeah, that's that I didn't know it was I mean I knew it was a busy schedule like 4 to 5 gigs are you doing like are they all like they can't all be the same I'm thinking like you know in my head like okay weekdays like school visits or like community center like uh it was uh, yeah the run of the gamut we so one of the things that the band prided themselves on was uh being the still most consistently touring band and like the highest perf- or highest volume of shows i guess um yeah, of, of that shows. kind um since 1956 they've been doing it since 1956 when the band was reformed um like in glenn's name with a lot of the original members uh and just ever since like when somebody would leave they'd replace it and the company's just been keeping it going um wow so yeah, I mean, some of them were, and, and in order to keep that schedule so full and to keep us on the road for so long, they would just take whatever they could get. So we had a promoter who did like the giant symphony halls and performing arts centers in the major cities, and those were awesome. And then we did a lot of high schools. <laughs> and like, you know, the high school band would come up at the end and play in the mood with us, and that was cute. And, yep. <laughs> you know, but it, it was fascinating to see the the different ways that audience members um like regarded and revered the band yeah Uh, some some people being lifelong fans and being like i've met every band leader and i've met um you know so many and like some fans who became friends uh and you know some of the lifers on the band who'd been there for 20 years give or take um just like become friends with the fans who have been following the band for so many years because they just keep seeing them yeah and that was cool uh yeah we've we've done trailer parks we've done campsites <laughs> um and then you know we would go to japan for a month every year which was really cool they'd been doing that for I don't even know how long at this point, maybe since the 60s or 70s, every year yeah. to Japan. And uh, they treated us like kings over there. <laughs> they they yeah. have a strong love for like, like I, I had a friend who studied in Japan for, you know, like a semester or two. And he he was just saying like the, the level of detail that goes into like representing American jazz in, mm. you know, in its classic form or even yeah. just performance in general, just, it, you, yeah, I could see why like the Glenn Miller orchestra coming over, they'd be like, yes, this is what yeah. we all trained for. Yeah. Well, and it's a totally different performance experience as well. Like in the States, it's very patriotic. Glenn Miller is Americana and the fan base is, hooping and hollering for all their favorite songs and all of that and it's a much more I think casual listening environment even in like the bigger symphony halls and stuff but in Japan it is dead silent they are so respectful of the entire performance Um, we change a lot of the speeches in between songs obviously because um, most of the audience doesn't speak English, so um, oddly, and even in like major cities like Tokyo or Osaka, um, it, it was kind of a gamble about what uh, what we would talk about. I guess um, talking about like the arrangers and the the tunes and stuff. Uh, so yeah, it, it was it was so fascinating, and and audience members would bring us gifts. Um, 
sometimes like treats for the whole band kind of thing. And like people who had never seen us or known us or anything. And then we also had friends who were lifelong fans in Japan as well, um, which was so cool. But it, it, it was a totally different experience. And I have a childhood best friend who I'm still close with today who was born in Japan, but moved to the States when she was one or two. And she was like, I've been to Japan to visit family like so many times throughout my life and you have seen Japan in ways that I have, I will never see it because of the way that they revere music like that and the music that you're performing um, and I'd never thought about that it's like wow it, it was really cool it was really cool <laughs> wow yeah that's I you know I, I imagine it's like I don't know if it's just like a I feel like you know you mentioned respectful it's like they understand the the almost like they understand that the the importance of the history of the group but then also like just kind of understanding like from you know bands like this from all these older you know ensembles that are still you know represented nowadays it's you know so much music has developed and you know come out of the success of different jazz presentations so yeah it's cool that there's like you go you go knowing that there's going to be like this this different level of respect. Not saying that American audience don't don't respect it because obviously it's people love it. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's just a different different flavor of of yeah. audience. The, the audience was I would compare it to like going to see a symphony orchestra. Like they're so quiet through the whole thing. Sometimes they don't even clap between songs. I guess it depended. Usually, actually, no. They usually clapped between songs. Um, but it was just clapping, no vocal hooting and hollering or anything like no whistling, anything like that. Um, just so much, so much, so different. Yeah. Very, very inward expression of, (laughs) but still super appreciative. And what, and it, it reminded me of some of the discussions that we've been having in earth radio of how to, present what we do in different audience stuff so like if you know if we had a week this month where we did uh what was it berlin sprig fest this restaurant berlin sprig moved to a new location downtown and Mm -hmm. the city had kind of made this like like a beach vibe like commons area where a lot of people could you know hang out and there's like a social zone um so it was like, okay, we played this kind of like beach vibe outdoor downtown thing where a lot of people could just kind of stumble in. And then, mm-hmm. you know, on Tuesday we played up up US 31 in Montague for the band shell. And it's like, okay, that's a built-in audience. People are there, you know, they set up their chairs in the morning and then right. come back. And it's this dedicated audience of like the community and some of the people who, you know, are there for the summer. And then... uh you know, two days later, we were back in Muskegon playing our monthly residency at Rake Beer Project. Mm-hmm. And, and we had, you know, probably like 10 people who came to all three things. And then we saw this smattering of like different people who like found us by accident, happened yeah. to be there because they're dedicated to the series. Like it's, it's like you never know until yeah. you like puts your art in different contexts, like how people totally. receive it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And, the different types of fans that we met, obviously different situation too, but like different fans that we met, maybe they were just like 
vintage enthusiasts and they were more about like the cosplaying and dressing up and like um, going to maybe World War II reenactments or whatever. Because I don't know if you know this, but Glenn Miller was the head of the Army Air Force Orchestra in World War II. Uh, oh, okay. So he has very strong ties and his music has very strong ties to World War II. And he went missing during the war over the, he, his plane went down over the English Channel. So then you get the conspiracy theorists as well saying that he never actually oh. died then. But those are a very different breed of fan. <laughs> uh, and there is, like you said, so much history that goes along with being a fan of this music um, depending on your age, basically, and, and how much you've grown up with it or how much you've studied it. Um, because, I mean, even I, when I got the gig, I didn't realize it was a thing. And, and, and we don't really, at least at Western in music history, in jazz history, we, we didn't um, touch on Glenn Miller hardly at all. Uh, but there is a whole other sect of the population who, who loved and revered him and as a band leader and his music. But... Um, like we were talking about the different venues where you play, it also played into the way that people treated us, like how people treated us at a trailer park versus how people treated us at like a symphony hall. Um, <laughs> it was so different. Um, and it affected what we wore, um, more so me than the guys. Like the guys had two outfits, either the suit and tie or they had like polos um, for like hotter outdoor gigs. Um, but I had all kinds of different dresses and I felt like it was really just like on me as the only woman to decide, okay, what's the vibe of this show? Like, am I wearing a sundress? Am I wearing a ball gown? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that, that was that thing too. I learned maybe too much about how people perceive female vocalists um, and, you know, people who feel they um, are in the place to pass judgment on what you're wearing and how you look and uh, mm. whether they're allowed to um, say certain things to you or touch you and stuff like that. Uh, Older fan base. Not fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd have guys come up, old guys, I'll never forget in like my first or second week, some old guy with his adult daughter um, came up for like an autograph and a picture at the end and and he was like, give me a kiss for the picture. And I was like, I don't do that. That's not my job. <laughs> and like right off the bat, I was like, mm -mm. and I looked at his daughter and she was like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> like not even telling him like, dad, what are you doing? Or like, dad, apologize. That's not That's cool. Him. <laughs> yeah, no, she's just like, oops. Like, okay. oh, you met my dad uh, right exactly and I was like uh, no actually I think we should um, leave room for Jesus in this photo so <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. man but yeah you know that was uh, a huge element of the gig that I guess it, it wasn't unexpected but you don't know how to navigate it until you've done it and definitely a little wake up call yeah it, and it's such a I don't know that I think about that too with you know I obviously as a as a guy I get away with you know I most of my gigs in the summer I could just literally have this shirt on and shorts and yeah. you know everyone you know Caleb Elzinger might be like don't wear shorts and I'm like <laughs> I I could I'm fine wearing shorts I'm seated mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like maybe you don't like wearing shorts like I've never seen you in, in shorts maybe when we were swimming like that maybe that's a you pro no no <laughs> but uh I you know I think of like um because with with Hannah in our yeah in Earth Radio right. um she uh 
you know, I, I gig with her in that band and then I'll gig with her in Blue Water Kings mm-hmm. and I'll see those differences in like, you know, how she like for Earth Radio, she dresses, you know, super creatively, you know, whatever mm-hmm. combination of things she wants to throw together. And it's 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 cool. And then, you know, just having to kind of have the polish like, well, the dress or the, you know, yeah. very, very like cookie cutter, like this is what a professional should wear. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't matter what she has on. Someone's going to, you know, a- approach and just not know how to speak yep. like a normal person. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just watching it in real time. And you're like, Oof, this is not. No. Because she also is at the merch booth after after shows. Right. It's, you know, you get those those comments. And, and some it's funny because like some people even if even if they i feel like most people who are you know an older crowd they have young people in their life yeah that you'd think they'd observe some of their you know how they speak and what they're talking about mm-hmm. a lot of people bring up you know mental health or like you know not don't be a creep or don't yeah. you know like respect people's you know privacy and space and and yet they're just kind of like they go into autopilot of like, well, this is what I said to get my wife in the fifties. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But this is in your wife. (laughs) Yeah. I find, you know, there were things that I loved about, um, being perceived (laughs) on the band, which was like, I had a ton of fun exploring vintage fashion and beauty. And so I like throughout my two years, I experimented with so many different ways to do my hair, figuring out rollers and pin curls and stuff. And, and, you know, basically after my first summer, I was doing it heatless, like just doing rollers or pin curls, um, which was great. And my hair was so healthy because of that. (laughs) But, um, you know, people, like I, I would have women come up to me and it would be like a bonding experience and they'd be like, oh my God, I love your makeup or I love your hair. How do you do your hair like that? Things like <laughs> that. And those were the moments that made me so excited and happy. Um, and, and so like I tried to really reconcile and, and balance like the good with the bad mm-hmm. um, or with uh, shopping, like thrift shopping, being in so many different cities all over the country. I was always looking for like a cool new dress or jewelry or shoes or accessories, or whatever, to add to my gigging wardrobe. Because I started on the band with two dresses, and they were both um, like evening gowns, and I just had two different colors to alternate because the guys have two different suits and ties. And by the by the time I left the band, I think I had eight or nine different dresses. <laughs> um, but it was also because you know we got through. Actually, no, I started with three. I, I did have a short dress for outdoor gigs. Um, but yeah, you know, as I progressed along my time with them, realizing the different venues and situations there would be different um you know different dress codes i guess that would make me feel more comfortable or just literally adding variety to my life yeah because oh and i think you were starting to ask this about whether it was the same show every night um or maybe you were just talking about venues but like it it was essentially the same show every night (laughs) we just kind of rotated different charts um we would play like the hits uh, Gotta play know, Pennsylvania hits. 6, 5,000, String of Pearls, Moonlight Serenade, American Patrol, all of those would be in the in the show every night because people come to hear those. And then interspersed and like the songs that I would sing for my solos and then some of the group tunes as well because um, we would have a, a 
a moonlight we were, we were called the moonlight serenaders which is a take on the modern airs and uh which was glenn's vocal group the a couple of guys from the band would walk out and we'd have a basically five group five part vocal group um those would kind of rotate every night so we would get variety through that but then like you're playing hits every night <laughs> which i don't sing any of the hits well except for um chattanooga choo choo yeah i would sing that every night but yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing you know our lead clarinet player who was one of the guys who's been doing it for over 20 years he never missed a note ever like oh. <laughs> there are like, people this is who me. Just, yeah like that was his identity and he was so so good he just everything was the same same inflection every night perfect wow there's something to be said for you know be and, and you know j- in jazz we're always ha- like transcribe this and that hey did you have you listened to this album that was you know a b-side from a basement session <laughs> in the 60s yeah like this one's killing and and so you know there's something to be said for people who you know, they transcribe something and they learn and they adapt it to their own vocabulary. And then there's the the other side where you're recreating that moment in a way that it's so clean that it's almost like it it transcends just being like, oh, he's just like no original ideas. He's just copying. It transcends that a little bit to get to like, oh, he's so good at this type of you know work and 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 his instrument by proxy to be able to like accurately recreate something that was probably just the spur of the moment you you know it was just an improvised thing (laughs) yeah yeah Um, and i mean glenn miller's read section is sort of iconic in the big band world um, being topped with the clarinet, obviously, mm-hmm. the the Glenn Miller Reed sound is something that the band leader would talk about every night in the show, and that was kind of like a little history lesson that he would throw in there. Um, but it's difficult. It is difficult to get that section to play in the style and in tune, uh, especially with the heavy vibrato. So, it. I mean, you know, you're doing it every night. Obviously, if you're not kind of getting it after the however many shows you're 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 on for then it's like okay well why aren't how do we fit you in why aren't why why isn't this working but um you know yeah and and that was the other thing too obviously we're all kind of playing these roles so to say um we were actually on acting acting modeling contracts we weren't on musician contracts and um they said they were casting the band as it was in the day of Glenn, uh, which traditionally was young, white, straight presenting males and one young white female singer. And, you know, that was that for a while. They've had people of color in the band over the past few decades, um, but it is never a very diverse environment. Right. Um, and they still do not hire women as instrumentalists. Wow. Or they did not at the time that I was pushing for that um and there were so many different excuses given uh it's our heritage (laughs) sure i mean even down to like the logistics of things where they were like well if we had another girl in the band you'd need a roommate you would have to live with her and one of your perks as a as a singer is you get your own room i'm like 
I am begging you for a roommate. I am begging for any female energy in this environment. Surrounded by all these men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, because it, it was a perk that I got my own room. That was nice. And, you know, I was reimbursed by the company for half of my hotel rooms when we had to pay for them. When we had to pay for them. And, uh, you know, whatever. Other guys had a roommate. And I did. Like, there were moments where I envied that relationship that some of the guys who got lucky and became very good friends with their roommates and had a good um, situation there. Um, obviously, it was very nice being the only woman to have kind of a, a privacy and like a respite from it by having my own hotel room. But yeah, at the end of the day, I was I, I literally I told them so many times I was like this band's social dynamic would be so much stronger if there were women here. This would be a better educational experience when we go to high schools because I've literally had students come up to me and say, why is there only one black guy? Why aren't there any girl instrumentalists? Kids are smart. Kids recognize yep. these things. And student musicians want to see themselves represented on stage. Yes. So. <laughs> obviously, uh. that didn't really <laughs> align with um, my my values and the things that I um, think are really important in 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 my <laughs> musical career and my educational career, however it unfolds for the rest of my life. But um, that was a part of the reason that I was starting to get burnt out. Yeah, well, and and it you saying that kids are perspective perspective perceptive. Yes. They have a perceptive perspective. Um, it's so true that you know it's like people bring in you know, high schools bring in entertainment, you know, when I worked at Allendale high school, they, mm -hmm. they bring in vocal groups and, you know, you'd see choir, you know, ensembles perform or bands or whatever. And, you know, kids want to see the, not only like themselves represented, I think also like they want to, they want to feel like the values that they're trying to push in their social settings are being understood Yes. And developed for just a general cultural shift. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, it's like, why not have, you know, a mixed race, mixed gender, you know, just this, this tapestry of like, this is what modern music looks like. Mm -hmm. And I get we're preserving this tradition. But at the same time, you know, there are plenty of options that aren't just like, okay, 10 guys from Chicago, 10 guys from New York, 10 guys from you know, just kind of sourcing like the, the same types of people. And, and it, it's not to, you know, like, I feel like when those conversations of inclusion come up, then they start going like, well, then who would we have to fire to like make room to, and it's like, well, we have turnover on the band every year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and, and that's what I would say. I would say, make it an initiative to fill the, the open seats with a woman or a, another person of color, preferably a woman of color, like it's not hard. And, and their response would be, we just don't have those people auditioning or they're never the best candidate. Right. To which I say, you're not trying hard enough. You're not seeking out the right talent pool or you're not seeking out the talent pool where you would find that, you know? And unfortunately the legacy that the Glenn Miller Orchestra holds in social settings uh, is not something that a lot of people who aren't young, white, male, 
college educated musicians are just who are just looking for a gig and they, they take advantage of that they're trying to hire people right out of school so they don't have to pay them too much you know it's yep. it, it is the nature of the world and the business that you know was just it, it, it wore me down yep you're dead you're just done with it yep <laughs> so quarantine came at a at a good time for me to just kind of reset and reconnect with my family um kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do next you know it was a lot I mean just the travel alone was a lot um feeling like I didn't necessarily have like a community uh that I was rooted in obviously the band was a community in itself and there are so many special memories from that experience of road life that I will never get anywhere else but you know it it works for some people long term and I don't think it was going to be something that I could have done much longer just because I, I like to nest and I like to be a part of a community and I want to feel like I am making a measurable difference where I'm at. Yep. And that uh, became very clear to me as we all sat at home and had to sit with ourselves and decide, do I like my life? Do I like who I am? And, <laughs> you know, what what's next, obviously? Yeah. 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 That's that. I feel like that's been such one of the, you know, the un, you know, uh, unplanned, I guess. I mean, you know, a, a pandemic is unplanned right. <laughs> definition of unplanned. Um, but you know, in my head, as things kept getting extended, I just thought, you know, like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll just, I'll, you know, I'll have to take the energy and time and all the things that I've done prior to this. And I'm going to have to just turn that up when there's nothing happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I got to a point where I'm like, you know, I'm not getting paid a lot or at all right, right. now. Like what, what, you know, what is, am I doing this just to seem busy? Am I doing this just because I, you know, feel like I have to work for this unemployment or the stimulus or so, like, you know, I have to, yeah, I have to totally. justify something. And I got to a point, it took until probably like February when I was starting to, you know, I, I restaurants were opening again, limited capacity. Mm -hmm. I, I got this residency at the listening room that was like twice a week. And I was just thinking like, I don't, need to like there's things I can tweak and there's things I can do that like everyone knows I'm busy so it doesn't matter if I take less because I'm still perceived as being busy and I'm still working on stuff and mm -hmm. I, it's still you know I don't need to like actually you know like I'm gonna do you know 16 hour days every day for five months mm -mm. And it's like that's that's what's gonna like ruin a lot of things yeah. And it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I find that very interesting. Do you feel like it's important to you to be perceived as busy? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Cause I've, I feel like, and I joke about this, that I've, I feel like I've been busy since really like eighth grade going into ninth grade. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been busy because I, you know, like I'm, you know, taking private lessons and performing. I'm, you know, in high school, I'm involved in my church twice a week. Uh, and, you know, Sundays are like pretty much like church. You're doing, you know, maybe you're on the worship band, you're in a service, then you have Sunday school, you have youth yeah. group. And then 
Uh, I was part of Grand Rapids Initiative for Leaders, which met, you know, once, sometimes twice, sometimes three times a week for different events. And that was kind of like supplemental church plus like a smidgening of, of certain, you know, life skills plus learning about, you know, how to, you know, organize, how to empower your community, how to, you know, recognize things like, you know, wage slavery or like, you know, all these problems with, you know, systemic racism Mm -hmm. and, you know, be going to Grand Rapids City High School too. it, It was a very, you know, involved high performing school. So I've just been, you know, I just got used to like, oh, I'm just always doing some kind of work and people know that I do that. And I just, that's how I get a lot of work is just that people know I can get a lot of work done. And I've, I've got to a point where it's like, I, 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 I want to still have all my creative needs met and still feel like I'm doing the projects I want to do, but I don't have to like all, you know, like you leave the the water running, eventually the sink's going to overflow. Like, <laughs> and that's not good. It causes all that. I love that analogy. I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah. Um, I always hear like, uh, you can't give from an empty cup or, or you can't pour from an empty cup kind of thing. Because if you're using all of your energy to be busy and to do things all the time, you can't give it in like, in cases of emergency or when you yourself need like rest or care or whatever that you need to take care of yourself um that I mean that was definitely something that I welcomed when quarantine hit (laughs) and there were definitely points in the time where I was just like laying on my bed like oh god what do I do today you know like (laughs) but at the same time I had not had that opportunity since like you said since I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade Mm -hmm. and I was so extracurricular out as a high schooler and then in college with ensembles and practicing and I even tried to do like some student organizations for a couple years that I was involved in and you know at a certain point it hits you either it's a it's a medical diagnosis or if it's a, a family member who needs extra care or passes away or, or whatever it may be there are these things that we are recognizing now especially at this point in our lives um that require us to slow down that require us to maybe not always say yes which is a culture that i definitely picked up in music school um say yes because you never know what opportunity it's going to lead to or what connection it's going to make you and that is such a good philosophy and i still stand by it and i am always staying curious and open when I do say yes, but, um, you know, I've, I've found for myself, I'm like, I need this many hours of sleep. I need this much exercise. I need these foods in my diet to feel like I can give my best self to the things I say yes to. And if that means saying no to other things, then I have to, um, which has, you know, been a fun little, uh, mental exercise. Like, do I even deserve to be a musician? Do I deserve to be a, like a working creative person if i'm not eat sleeping and breathing my craft and right we're exploring that (laughs) and it's obviously not a thing that someone is deserving or undeserving of of course but it's it's the way that we want to craft our own lives around our own values yes and well and and especially like 
Um, I think I mentioned in a text how I, you know, I've, I've lost like 30 pounds so far and I'm, and I, you know, my diet's changed and I've, I noticed like just the ability, like, Oh, I even just moving is easier. Like mm-hmm. the energy comes to like, like I have more energy, but then I also have a better sense of like, all right, I need to do these things in the morning. I need to get back into that semblance of a routine. Cause I, I realize a lot of the habits I picked up in college were, you know, unsustainable yeah it's totally like all right late night in the practice room get up or i'm gonna grab you know something from the student center before i go to class and you know it's oh i had a cliff bar and it's been six hours like and then then it's just like it's all goes downhill from there um so that's that's been another thing i've had to yeah the the mentalness of it the retraining Mm -hmm. of like yes i can sleep yes i can play this video game yes i can like you know, you know, I don't have to always be like buttoned up tight. Um, especially when I know comparatively to like it, you know, I, I've proven in multiple ways that, you know, the general public, some people, if I explain it, they're like, Oh, that's cool. And then other people are like, Oh, you went to this thing. Oh, you know, you've worked with these people. You went and got your master's. Like, I don't, I don't have to justify, every second of my day and i i i was thinking about that on on sunday because you know i'm i'm still in the middle of kidney stone fever and just waiting you know uh, that's all i could do and sunday i you know i wanted to connect my friend caitlin who um i don't know if you know her caitlin cusack at all um she's she's a grand valley grad um, we went to school at the same time. She started in the piano studio and then she kind of shifted towards vocal and, and musical theater. And, um, and she suffered a concussion years ago and it forced her to like, like she has these, you know, these big moments of brain fog. Like she, yeah. it, it physically hurt to like perform. So she had to take, you know, like two, three years off of music Um and she's now, she's now stepping back into, you know, she understands how to manage these symptoms and things. And she wants right. to, you know, step out and do stuff. And she's still, you know, she's trained. So she sounds great. She's writing music. Um, but we were going to meet up with um, the engineer at Third Coast, uh, Kevin, and he's got a sailboat. And he was like, well, what if we just did the meeting on the sailboat? And I'm like, that sounds <laughs> great. And at, and then as we were sailing, there was a there was a waterfront concert and like one of the engineers for the concert was emo and i could see his hair pulled back with his hat and in my head i'm like i was supposed to play a gig with emo and i canceled it when i was like in the hospital just like i'm i don't know how long this pain will last so i'm just gonna cancel like four gigs and and i had to have that moment of like no no like if he knows if he really knows me like he's not going to be upset that he sees me on a boat and you know like that was more rest just being able to like move move about and not you know have somebody be like wait why is he he's supposed to be this like this is what you and i'm like yeah well yeah i mean i it's crazy i also (laughs) suffered a concussion my senior year of college and then um 
kind of like doubled down on it and slipped a month later and hit my head again. Um, so it all reset. Yes. Um, but then also I had COVID back in November and from kind of talking to different doctors and stuff, and obviously long COVID symptoms are still being researched and discussed and considered. Um, but I too suffer from brain fog sometimes and I'll need people to repeat instructions for me at work or I'll just ask so many questions. And I've started to offer it as a disclaimer when I meet new people or if I'm in new settings um, where I just say, hey, I might need you to repeat things for me. This is why. Or I might need to take a break from the computer for this long every day because I literally can't function if I look at a screen for too long and things like that. Right. Um, But... Yeah, and and that is something, too, where, like, I've had to remember that I trust myself, and I am the only person that I'm going to spend my whole life with, and if somebody is going to perceive a choice that I make to preserve, like, for self-preservation, if somebody's going to perceive that as lazy or non-committal or whatever it may be, I have to let that go, Mm -hmm. and I have to trust myself and hope that they also trust me in a way you know and and if they don't then that's okay it's a lost connection but it's probably better for me in the long run because it might have been a headache to work with them for the rest of my life kind of thing (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) well and and that's part of why I started podcasting and you know the premise of Bitten Backstage is kind of like I'm I'm sharing like yes we're talking about you know topics that you could just put as a banner for a podcast, you know, like mental health or, you know, touring or, you know, there's all these themes that go with podcasting, Mm -hmm. but the, I guess the theme for this is like, this is kind of what, like if we were hanging out (laughs) for an extended period of time, or if we were playing a show together, like this is kind of, you know, we talk about music and life and, you know, the things we learned and the things were changing, you know, I, I I got, I, I got to see um, uh, Alfredo uh, Belcasser mm-hmm. on Monday um, because he was he's just in town and he wanted to do a, a proper listening party with all you know as many of the people who were involved on his album and in those conversations it was it was just nice to be like oh yeah so you know all these people had the same you know, concerns or issues that I was having and I just wasn't being communicative of while I was at Western. Totally. And, you know, it was great to be like, okay, I wasn't crazy. I, Mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, I was perceiving these things and not expressing them because I just didn't, you know, I I felt like I was stepping out of line, but it turns out everyone had similar thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think that's what we're more often not more often than not going to find is there are so many more things that we all have in common and that we all see the same way than not you know than differently yeah sure. yeah well this was a great chat it's great learning more about what you do and and what you know the experience of being in that kind of group and all this stuff yeah <laughs> totally no <Nope>, book <laughs> yeah um where should people do you want them to find you i mean you got all those albums you still got to <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you're if you're interested obviously um you can check out my website which is just my name hannah um i 
don't do a ton of music things on the internet, but if you just want to follow me as a person, um, my Instagram is Hannah E. Truck. My middle name is Elizabeth. That's what the E's for. Um, and then you can also find my artist page on Facebook, which is not super active either, um, but that's just Hannah Truck Abroad. Um, it's a vocalist page. And um, yeah, I'm also on TikTok. Again, I'm not posting a lot of music stuff. It's a lot more silly things. I've found my place in uh, Taylor Swift TikTok community as I am a huge Swifty behind and in front of closed doors. So, (laughs) Um, yeah, this was so much fun, Dutcher. Thank you for having me. And I wish you nothing but the best. I hope I'll be up in West Michigan soon enough. I just need to hear Earth Radio play live again. It is a need, not a want. <laughs> yeah, and I'll let you know, we, we might be going to Chicago this fall. Oh, that would be so, dope. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to do, I've, I've been, we're, we blocked off two dates. I'm trying to make it three. That would be sweet to just do a weekend and see all yeah. the folks we saw in 2019. <laughs> that would be awesome. I'll be there. Awesome. Well, yeah, take, take it easy. <laughs> take care. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode with Hannah Truck and Road. I'm trying an outro while the credits roll. I want to thank all the Patreon members, all the subscribers, everyone who supports these podcasts with your ears, with your dollars, all those great things. And we will catch you next time on Mitten Backstage.